and we'll move on to the next segment. We are lucky enough to get some time to talk more about kind of the foundations of experiential education and outdoor education and this whole idea of rugged communalism, which Hutch will talk about more. And from there, we just kind of went on a spiral and talked about camp for a good while. Um, Summer camp is kind of the embodiment, Hutch's favorite embodiment of experiential education. And we learned as we went on that we could talk about summer camp and its applications in urban settings as well for hours and hours. So we kind of had to limit ourselves to a few topics today. But I hope you enjoy this episode um, about summer camp, about how it can be a way to uh, reinforce social barriers. But as Hutch explained to us, it was really a, a profoundly uh, progressive moment in time in terms of breaking down social barriers and getting people to have those shared human experiences in the outdoors um, coming out of cities. I think one of my favorite moments from this whole series so far has been this idea of bewilderment that the principles of outdoor education can be applied to any setting in which you're bewildered, whether that means taking the tea or the the subway for the first time, or that means building a fire on a windy day um, in the outdoors. Uh, this is where we really come together, um, no matter what our backgrounds are, to to figure out how to deal with this bewilderment. And so stay tuned for more after this episode, but I hope you enjoy it. One of the biggest questions we had last time was uh, your kind of hallmark phrase of rugged communalism versus rugged individualism and what that means for experiential education and camp, and what does that mean? Yeah, no, great question. So... Um, well, let's start with rugged individualism, right? And, and this initial concept, because this idea of rugged individualism is very um, woven into the mythology of America and, and American history and literature. And, and, and really, the, the idea of rugged individualism is that, you know, America is made by these rugged pioneers, right? It's these, these colonists who went out alone and conquered the wilderness and went off and, and, you know, built this, you know, nation out of this, you know, wild continent that was there. Um, there's lots of, you know, uh, spinoffs p- elements where you think about like the, you know, picking yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, th- that kind of me- mentality of really the way that you're successful is that you are individual, you're strong, you're tough, you're rugged, you're, you're all those things. Um, and there's, you know, a, a lot of folks actually make reference to Ralph Waldo Emerson's self-reliance for part of that, um, which there's a strong justification for that. I, I think usually uh, people who are doing that aren't looking at Emerson's larger works because self-reliance is a part of a larger whole. And most of his work doesn't resonate with that. It's not really all about being an individual. It's all about being part of a community and 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 that that's the really what Emerson was talking about, but, uh, and the transcendentalist, but the, the idea of the rugged individual is a very attractive component of American culture. Um, it's also often used to, to, it's tied to capitalism, you know, and, and how do you drive up your own personal profits and, and how do you, you know, who cares about the other guy? If we're all being rugged and individualistic, then we're all going to 
lift ourselves up than all this. That that's the mythology. Justifies enslavement. <coughs> it justifies enslavement. It justifies people, oppression. Yeah. It justifies because you wouldn't be oppressed if you worked harder and lifted yourself up, right? That's and so it's really, really easy to um, take this concept of of self reliance and self confidence and use it as a justification for ignoring the plight of those around you. Um, and, and really, it's I, I, so that's rugged individualism. Um, but it's a strong myth. I mean, it's John Wayne. It's, it's you know, American it's cowboy <laughs> movies. It's the American dream, right? You know, it's, it's all of that. Um, very paternalistic, very masculine, rah-rah, I'm awesome. Um, because it's so deeply tied to the wilderness and, and pioneering and that kind of thing, a lot of, uh, I think, people make the assumption that that's transferred very quickly to outdoor education. Um, whether we're talking about summer camp, whether we're talking about outdoor recreation, whether we're talking about scouting, whether, right. you know, that it's you're being a rugged individualist, right? You're going out into the wilderness. You're conquering mountains. You know, you're beating nature. You're mm-hmm. doing these kind of things. And and there's people transfer that one intellectual concept onto what they're seeing going on in this wilderness environment. A lot of the writing that I've done and and the work that I've done around the history of of camp is that that is not at all what outdoor education was designed to do. That's not at all the larger romantic concept of, of... when you look at the, the works that were inspiring a lot of these early camp directors and, and, and folks that were pushing the movement in the 19th century, it's not at all what you're talking about when you look at Emerson in a broader sense um, or any of the transcendentalists. And that the really what we're talking about is how do you build community? And, and for a lot of these folks, what they see is that the summer, part of the reason why you have summer camp and outdoor education is to counter that rugged individualism. And it's to create what I really defined as rugged communalism. And, and this idea of the ruggedness, yes, right, that, that you are interacting with nature, that you are going to be facing hardship intentionally, that you are going to you know, suffer through some difficult things. Mm-hmm. So the rugged part, of what camp was meant to be is is legit. That's they they wanted it to have, you know, you're facing challenge in the outdoors. You're facing the uncertainty of the environment. You know, the weather changes, the storms get kicked up, the you know, it's going to rain, it's going to be really hot. You're going to have mosquitoes. You're going to have, you know, if you're going to climb a mountain, it's hard. If you're going to paddle across Lake Winnipesaukee, it's hard. You know, if you're going to any of the outdoor activities that you're going to do that become part of the camp experience, there's physical challenge. There's ruggedness as part of it. It's intentionally designed to not be a resort, right? And and at the birth of the summer camp movement, there it's it's paralleled with the resort movement in the White Mountains. Mm-hmm. And part of it's because the parents are going to the resorts and the kids are going to the camps. And that's so that the kids don't have caviar and chandeliers, but you know, have campfires and canoes and, and the parents can have their vacation and the kids get with, get this ruggedness that they think is really important that, that, that 
people in, in 19th century America thought was really important, people today think are really important. <clears throat> but the the individualism piece is is off base when you look at the curriculum of what outdoor education was about. Because outdoor education from the beginning is about building community. And it's about being there with people. And when you think about the camp movement, you're there working with your peers. You're, when you look at like Camp Chikurawa, which was the first summer camp, it was very intentionally, we're going to build our cabins together. We're going to all do dishes. We're going to all cook. There's no servants here. There's no, you know, separation of classes. Like where kids need to learn how to survive and and not like eating twigs and berries and hunting your own food, but how do you do dishes? How do you do your laundry? How do you, you know, take care of your house, mm-hmm. you know, being a very simple cabin, but but doing that. How do you work and get paid for that work. You know, they would clear trails and, and cut trails and get paid in that, which they could then use as spending money. And that was all part of the whole experience of camp. Um, how do you govern yourself? You know, in summer camps, using some type of self-governing system, you know, where they, they had different rules and laws that they were enacting on the community. But And the organizational structure, you're in a cabin, and so, and and as it evolves, you know, there might be, you know, at, Sar- at Sergeant Camp, we had the Golden Broom. You know, you, the cleanest camp, or the cleanest cabin won the Golden Broom, and it was a big deal. But all everyone at the that cabin was responsible to each other, and and that is core to all of these outdoor education programs, um, and has maintained central to that. You look at the scouting movements, and when the scouting movements, both Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts are emerging, central to their mission is service and service to others. You're not going out there developing these skills so that you can just be the biggest, strongest, fastest. You're developing your skills so you can help people who are less fortunate than you. The the Boy Scouts early on, like literally from, from the beginning of the Boy Scouts of America, referred to themselves as peace scouts and, and and very much in the ideology of the of those early years they were pushing back against the militarism that was leading into world war one mm-hmm. I mean, teddy roosevelt was was a strong advocate of the boy scouts until the boy scouts kicked him out mm-hmm. and the boy scouts kicked him out because he thought they should be training for war and and but for the boy scouts the idea was they need to be trained in first aid and communication mm-hmm. and like signaling because when there's an emergency, we need people to be able to deliver first aid. If, if we've got you know, a hurricane coming in and we've got to find ways to send semaphore messages or Morse code, like we need kids to be able to serve the community when crisis happens. Um, and, and that's not you know, individualism. That's everything you're learning is for the betterment of other people. Um, the Girl Scouts are the exact same way. Um, when you look at, at a camp like Camp Pasquani, Camp Pasquani is the, the, one of the oldest summer camps in America. 1896, maybe, was when it was founded. Um, and it's still in the exact same location on Newfound Lake in New Hampshire that it was when it was founded. They're still using some of the same buildings. Um, that was founded really for children of, of wealth and privilege, you know, very wealthy little white boys, um, that were the idea was 
these kids are being born into privilege, but they have to learn the importance of serving others. That your privilege is an opportunity to benefit the community. It's not, nobody owes you anything. You've been given, you know, what's the phrase? that like with, um, To those that much has been given, much is expected. Right. And, and it was that mentality that it, it's great that you've had these this wonderful opportunity at home and all the educational gifts you could possibly get and a nice roof over your house and food and servants and all that. But when you come to camp, you're going to learn to be who you are and you're going to learn to serve everyone around you and and benefit the community. And so and you look at the history of that particular camp and they've had a huge impact on not just the trail building and conservation in the White Mountains, but there's a number of camps that exist, including ones that serve just at risk youth um, that exist because the Pasquani boys put their time and energy into it. And the alumni put their time and energy to, to develop that that concept of service. The um, the Groton School Camp, which opened, I think, in 1890. Um, at the uh, Camp Chikoroa opens in, in, which is the first summer camp, is 1882. So within eight years, you have the Groton School Camp. And, and the Groton School Camp was part of the missionary program of the Groton School, the, the wealthy prep school in Massachusetts. And the, the vision of the school was that the, the counselors would be students at Groton, but the kids would all be inner city Bostonians. So kids from the North End, kids from the South End, you know, and, and kids that had, were coming out of tenement houses. And those kids could go to camp for free. The Groton School kids would fundraise. They would find a way to pay for it. These kids from the inner city would come. And there's, yes, there is a class difference. I mean, who's the counselors and who are the campers? Mm-hmm. But the reality is you have this really close interaction about, you, you know, you've got your cabins that you're, you're, you've got your hikes that you're going on. You've got your experiences that are all communal. And, and the idea of it was not just for these kids from the inner city to get an experience with outside of living in a tenement house in the summer, but for these boys of wealth and privilege to have an experience that they would never get in any in, in in their boarding school or in their you know wealthy summer cottages or in their mansions you know back in New York or, or wherever, by having this experience this close connection with kids from the what we would now call the inner city, the idea was they would have a better understanding of to use the phrase you know people from the other side of the tracks or you know the the how the other half lives now. How effective was it? Um, the uh, Groton School Camp ran from you know 1890 until the 1960s, um, and I would argue that well, their most famous camp counselor was a guy named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You might have heard of, and and so you know you think about the first interaction that FDR ever had with people in poverty was being was being at camp with kids from you know, the tenement communities in Boston. And that was just as counselors. And that was... The, the campers that came that week, right? Well, but, no, but they would be the counselors of those kids. Right. So, you know, they're sleeping in cabins together. They're going paddling together, having these adventures together and, and really learning about 
you know, when you're having conversations around a campfire, when you're, you know, you're in, when you're in a tent together as the storm rages. Background kind of goes out the window. Yeah. <laughs> you're all kids, you know, and they're not that much older, these counselors, right? So you get a very, um, the, the, the walls get broken down in, in, a, in a camp like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a bit of a sidetrack, but I was listening to a podcast the other day about this experiment they did. I forget what time period it was, but it was uh, sending like three black kids down to an evangelical prep school in the South. Um, but not for the black kids, solely to benefit. I mean, it helped them because they got into Harvard Law School, but right. um, solely to benefit the white elite boys that were at that prep school so they would understand people from the other side of the tracks, but it ended up resulting in just like a lot of racial violence and animosity at that um, school. But I'm wondering if uh, just the like components of outdoor camps and mixing of classes and people at camp versus say at a prep school is a lot more effective in that you have to be responsible no matter what, because somebody has to do the dishes. You have to survive in a tent together. Yeah. Um, Well, and that's, I I think it's the, I, I don't do a lot of research on prep schools, so I, yeah, I, and, I and I didn't go to prep school, so I, I don't really have a good basis to speak to to that. Yeah. Um, but the, the kind of democratic, egalitarian ideals mm-hmm. that, that emerge out of being in the outdoors together, mm-hmm. right? That's part of the American myth, too, that the, the wilderness is what made Americans, made our American culture. Um, but in the case of summer camp, part of what they're trying to do is mirror that myth. But there are pragmatic realities in that. You know, lightning doesn't care how much money your parents make. And you know that. And so when you're on a ridge and lightning's rolling, you're just as scared as the kid next to you. You know, and, and that's a humbling experience. You know, and similarly, when you're struggling together to get a fire going when it's wet, you're both cold. The other person's not any more or less cold than you are, and you're both just as excited when that fire catches, right? And those common shared experiences, I mean, that's Howard Thurman at its core. Common shared experiences build our collective humanity. And so in that wilderness context, you know, and I use wilderness, we use small w wilderness, and we can, again, we can talk about wilderness in all sorts of different ways, but, um, but being in hardship, facing some type of discomfort, that ruggedness is something that allows those barriers to break down very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and the, the Groton School Camp wasn't alone in doing what they were doing. In, in 1900, um, Camp Hale started. Um, and Camp Hale still is in operation and is just a program that I just am fascinated by. I love it. Um, and, and Hale House, which was a settlement house in the south end of Boston, started to run this summer camp for inner city kids in, in you know, kids in the south end of Boston. And so they've run this camp from 1900 till through today. It's still running. And, and even though Hale House doesn't exist anymore, now it's part of the United South End Settlements. But even though that the settlement house is gone, the camp is still rolling. And, and even though the South End, their, you know, their demographics have changed, so has the camp. You know, and, and you know, it used to be all Irish and Italian kids. Now it's, it's mostly you know, children of color. 
you know, and, and so, you know, Hispanic and African-American. And, and so it, it, it changes as time has gone on, but serving that geographic population and giving them the same experience that, you know, these wealthy summer camp mm-hmm. kids were supposedly getting. Um, and so, and you do have, there are summer camps that are very much kind of class differentiators. You know, you want to make sure that your kid goes to the right camp. You know, I'm doing air quotes right there. And, and that doesn't show up on a podcast, air quotes, I know. But but the that your kid's going to go to the, the, the camp that, that demonstrates their class. It's really expensive. It's really tough to get into. And, and, and in the same way that prep schools do that to demonstrate mm-hmm. class and wealth and privilege, you know, there are summer camps that do that as well. Um, but the, the thing about summer camps overall is that, you know, if you look at the, the history of, of public school, we'll say, right, mm-hmm. you, you can craft a narrative about the history of public school that follows the political debates of the day, people in power, the, you know, fads about education and learning and, and psychology. And, and you can see the narratives change or, or the, the narrative itself evolve throughout a period of time. If and it works its way out in in school board debates and elections. If you want to study the history of a of a an institution, of a Boston University or a Harvard or a whatever, you can follow the boards of trustees and the presidents and the faculty and like key moments in history where the school made a decision and all that. Summer camps are very different because there are so many of them. Like if 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 you and I wanted to go start a summer camp. We could go find 20 parents that believed whatever we believed about what kids need, and they would give us their kids for like a week or two weeks. And, and we don't have to really advertise. We just need to find those parents, which might be word of mouth and oftentimes is. And then we, we don't have to have a summer camp. We don't need a physical space. We don't need to buy land. We can just get some backpacks and sleeping bags and go off into the state forest or the national forest right. or whatever. And, <laughs> and and boom, we've got a summer camp. And and maybe we'll do it again next year and the next year. Or maybe it just disappears and we don't do it at all. Mm-hmm. Or then you start your own camp and you get property and I keep doing something else and, and whatever. And, and so when you look at the history of camps, you see this really grassroots expression of what is it that kids need that they're not getting. There's a rebellion in summer camp that, that you know, our kids don't get, uh, they need time away from video games or time away from, you know, from sitting in class all day or being inside, whatever it is that there's concerns about, you know, uh, health and obesity. These are the, the arguments for why you should send your kid to camp today. Well, back then it was the same. The concern was that, you know, they're in unhealthy environments in, a, in an urban context. The air quality isn't as good. The food isn't as good. They're not active enough. You know, they need to get away from this technology like the trolleys and elevators. Like, think about what's going to happen to our children if they have to ride on elevators, like, all summer long. Like, what that will do to their nervous system. You know, and that, those are real concerns in, in 1890s and in 1900. And they're very egalitarian concerns and that we need to get everybody out of the city. Well, and that's the thing. You have, for, for those kids that are of wealth and privilege, their parents may be like, we need to get our kids out. But for, you know, like settlement houses and, and groups that are focused on social progress, you know, they're really looking at how do we get inner city kids out. And so you have a place like Camp Hale 
that's really going to focus on we're going to have our own summer camp for our kids to be able to go. We're going to fundraise. We're going to do it. And and it doesn't take long for the alumni of those camps who start to say, wow, what really made me a successful doctor, lawyer, teacher, business person was getting out of the city and being at camp and learning the value of relationships and community. And so I'm going to give back to that. And so they're pretty well funded from their alumni and, and have been for a century in order to be able to deliver the, the experience that they're given. Now, they're not sending their kids to Patagonia, right? They're not, a, they're not out backpacking the Rocky Mountains and on these really mm-hmm. deep, intense, you know, high-end adventure treks. They're going to camp, you know, and they're going to be on Squam Lake, just like they have been for the last 117 years, 16 years. Mm-hmm. And so... That's, that's how they approached it. Now, other settlement houses, like the North Bennett Street School, right, which is still in operation. Now it's kind of a, a trade school for artisan crafts like bookbinding and, and, you know, fine instrument repair and, like, really cool stuff. Locksmithery. I don't know. Is that a word? I think lock, locksmithing? Lock, locksmithery just sounds better. So we're going to call it that. And the... Uh, and so, the, but the North Bennett Street School started as a settlement house serving the north end of Boston. Mm-hmm. And so, what they had developed was this kind of multi tiered outdoor education program where the youngest kids would have these day camp experiences. They would take them out to the Blue Hills, they would take them to Revere Beach, they would take them to Walden Pond or to Plymouth or, or somewhere that they're going to get connected to nature, somewhere that they can get them on a train and get there, right? You know, it's not hard to, to get them from the North End to North Station and get them out to experience something. And so, <clears throat> but just day trips. Mm-hmm. Then they had this Boxford camp, which was um, north of Boston in Boxford, Mass. And and the Boxford camp was an old farm that they purchased. And, and you had the farmhouse, you could do some cooking there, you had the barn in case it was really bad weather, but the kids could camp out, they could learn how to, you know, pick berries and, you know, be connected to nature, have a campfire, you know, and and they would do, they would have a boys camp, they would have a girls camp, they would have a family camp where you would go with your parents. Mm -hmm. And and part of the idea is the parents, and again, this is all predominantly Italian immigrant families. And this is where uh, the idea was the settlement house folks could help families learn about nutrition learn about kind of this agrarian ideal of America. You know, now that they're here, what does this all mean? And, you know, all of those kinds of, of American skills, things that, that were needed to, to survive in, in this environment of, of early 20th century America. And, and then once the boys and, and girls had gone through that experience, then there were later ones. And, and the biggest later experience was a thing called caddy camp. And caddy camps were huge in Boston. And, and to the point where when it was time for, you know, the health physicals to get ready for caddy camp, this is like news in the globe that, oh, it's physical time for caddy camp. You know, time for the boys to all get there, you know, go see the doctor. But what caddy camp was, was a partnership between settlement houses in Boston and resort hotels and golf courses in the White Mountains. And the, those places, the White Mountains, they, they needed caddies for their golf courses, for the, the people that were coming from all over the world and, and, and wealthy parts of the United States to go golfing and vacation in the Whites, and so, White Mountains. And so the, the, what the settlement houses were able to do were provide 
the caddies. So they would choose these boys. They would, the boys would apply and get in, and, and they'd make sure they had a chance to go. And, and then they would spend some of their time during the school year doing some fundraising, and they would do special events and, you know, concerts and stuff. And But then they would go to camp, and they would stay at this camp, which was attached to the resort. And, you know, half the day, they're in camp activities. They're playing sports. They're going hiking. They're going horseback riding. The other half of the day, they're working at the golf course and they're getting paid. They're learning how to do their job that when the boys got paid, they would have to come back and deposit their money in the camp bank. They had to learn how to use a bank account. They had to pay rent. Uh, and so the, you know, and pay room and board, which at the end of the summer, they would have money left over. But the key thing was that they were learning how do you balance a checkbook? You know, how do you manage your accounts? How do you take that kind of, you know, financial responsibility for yourself? While they're also bumping elbows with, you know, all these folks of wealth and privilege that were, you know, financiers and bankers and business people that were coming up from New York and Philadelphia and Boston. And and the idea, and this is a very bootstraps, Horatio Alger kind of idea, is that, well, you just need, if you ever read Horatio Alger books, these were really popular late 19th, early 20th century, and this is where that bootstrap, lift yourself up by your bootstraps idea is so deeply ingrained. But all of those books follow the same pattern. You have a plucky kid who's just a good kid in a rough environment who happens to cross paths with someone of wealth and privilege who sees their potential and gives them a chance. And and that's what it took. So just be a good person and work hard and lift yourself up. And that moment's going to come when, you know, wealthy people will lift us up. That's more or less the, the cynical approach. But, but, but that was woven into that experience and it was what was actually happening. You know, when you talk to alums of the caddy camps, they mention, they'll talk about, well, you know, yeah, I remember this one guy who, you know, he, uh, he really connected with one of these businessmen from Philadelphia who ended up paying for his college degree. You know, or, you know, that there are guys that are saying, well, you know, after, you know, if it was a really good caddy, the businessman would say, hey, what are you doing when you graduate from high school? You know, if you're looking for a job, come to New York. Here's my business card. Give, go to this address and give this card to, you know, the woman at the front desk and you'll have a job. And, and so for these boys coming from, you know, the North End, that's a really empowering opportunity. Um, and, and when you look at some of their alumni writings and things, and they write about how, you know, for a lot of these kids, they, they got into grad, or they got into to college, and the way they paid off college, the way they worked their way through was as a caddy at a resort near wherever they were going to school. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, and it's, there's, it's a way for the resorts to, I'm sure, exploit them in terms of, like, low wage more than they would have been able to do with another labor population, and it's kind of this white savior mentality, but at the same time, the outcome is really beneficial for getting people out. Well, and I think, and and you look at the white savior mentality and you look at the exploitation piece and, you know, yes, the the resorts definitely could have done, they could have hired other people. They could have, you know, taken these boys and the the resorts could have paid for the kids to have a college degree, right? That's theoretically possible, financially not, but the, but looking at what was going on at the way that the, the, the 
people who are the players making this happen. You have these folks running the settlement houses who find an opportunity mm-hmm. for these inner city kids to get a chance. Right, rather than and just staying there. Rather than just being in and, and one of the things that you see a lot too are these, they, they were camperships that they were giving. Mm-hmm. And a camperships like a scholarship. And when you look at the, the, uh, the notes on why this kid's getting a campership and this kid isn't, you see like, well, man, this family – you know, the dad who's the, you know, the, the main breadwinner just had a serious accident at work and can't work for the next two months. And they've got four kids at home. If we can send two of those kids to camp, that's two mouths they don't have to feed. Mm-hmm. And it's less that the parents have to do as dad recuperates. You know, or you've got this kid who's really a good kid, but is yeah, we've noticed he's hanging out with some kids that are really don't make good decisions. Let's get this kid out of the environment and, and give them some something to uplift how they're feeling about themselves and really show them that leadership, what they can do and how they can lead. And that's the rationale for how they're getting these kids out of that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I, it's easy to go to the cynical approach yeah. of like, we're just reinforcing <laughs> class and stereotype, right? But, well, but people out too. yeah, and, but there's also the fact that they're also breaking those barriers in the process. You know, that these kids, once they go to college, once they get that degree, they've got an opportunity to, to move into an upper level, right? And, and, to, and to then be able to give back and, and help kind of draw more people out. And that's, that's what you see in those interactions. And so it's, you know, I, I, one of the things I'm always really um, careful of is to make sure that when we're looking at some of these historical movements, mm-hmm. to it's important to be critical, but it's also really important for us not to be overly cynical and to really think about what's what's going on. What what are the barriers that are being broken? Mm-hmm. You know, well, we talked about Dudley Sargent at one mm-hmm. point. Yeah. You know, and Dudley here's this guy who, in using physical education for women, is shattering expectations of gender right and he's empowering he's creating this camp and women's camps are are girls camps to to use the term they would use the the girls camps are create a space for women to do things that for girls to do things that they could not do anywhere else that would be socially acceptable to do things they couldn't do anywhere else i mean you look at at a lot of the camp directors you look at the girl scout leaders it was socially acceptable for women who were in that role to have long-term, uh, close, same-sex relationships where they might live together, not get married, right? A- a- and that was considered a really wonderful thing because they were committing themselves to all these other kids. They were committed. But, but what it also was, was a socially acceptable way for women to have same-sex relationships, mm-hmm. right? Sexual relationships, that that and creating that space in camp and in scouting um, was something that was really important. Uh, when you look at at uh, at Dudley Sargent and the work that he was doing, now you can look at you know I think one of my favorite examples you, you look at publicly in, in the newspapers because again he's the leading figure in in physical education at the time. So he's in the newspaper writing about how you know what women can run, they can play sports. 
They can. They need to stop wearing corsets. We need to stop making them wear long dresses and corsets when they're going to go do physical activity because that's what holds them back, not, yeah. you know, that they're women. Mm-hmm. And and here's the scientific evidence I've got behind it. Here's how women, why women should be physically active and working out and, and doing these things because it's better for their health. Now, he's saying that so that he's also saying that way they can be stronger mothers and raise children better, right? So, okay, so are we? what are we undermining? But the alternative at the time was women shouldn't be active right, at all. Just to keep them where they are. Right? And, right. And, and he would say, look, you can, women can play any sport that a man can play with the exception of football, rugby, and baseball. But there's a baseball right? diamond there. But there's a baseball diamond at Sergeant Camp. Yes. Right? Right next to the softball diamond. So it's very intentional that he's crafting this sport, that he's publicly saying that women shouldn't play this sport. But at his camp, which was a girls' camp, there's no boys going to sergeant camp. Who's playing baseball, right? So you see this kind of thing where I think it's really easy for us to look at at folks that are actors and progressive actors in this period of time, and and see kind of this reinforcement of class that's going on. But that's easy for us to do now, at the time, to realize how radical they were. And what they were pushing, you know, they're not going to completely revolutionize all of culture, but they're going to push. And get the social acceptance to give the opportunity to break those barriers, which then the women could do on their own. They, yes. they didn't have to be mothers, even if he said, I'm making them to be mothers. They could get stronger, which they might not otherwise have been able to, and then go do what they wanted yeah. to do. And, and he's creating that space. Mm-hmm, right. and, and the folks that are creating these summer camps... And, and a lot of the, the, the girls' camps were run by women, you know? And, and, and so there's a space that had been created. You look at, at a lot of the summer camps, not only are they run by women, they're run by women who, who on the, the brochures to promote it are Sergeant College graduates. Mm-hmm. And, and they go down the list of who's their, the director of athletics, the director of the, you know, of, of, of uh, the waterfront, the director of this. Sergeant College, Sergeant College, Sergeant College. And they're doing that. So be able to be able to say, look, this is what matters. If you're a Sergeant College grad, you can have a huge impact on women's, girls' education in outdoor education. You create this space. But it's a socially acceptable space, right? right? You don't need to have boys watching over you. We have Sergeant girls watching over you. Mm-hmm. And, and that had a gravitas in the early 20th century. Um, and so that's, and I think that's important when we look at this stuff and we look at how that, you know, again, I, I look at this, we'll go to back to the Groton school piece. The counselors are the wealthy kids. The campers are the kids from the inner city. So are we reinforcing class or are we also at the same time breaking down barriers of class? Right. And both truths can exist at the same time. Did any of the lower class kids end up being counselors later on? I don't know. Curious. I don't know. W- one of the things you see in a lot of camps, and, and Hale is a great example, where they cultivate campers. And, and so the, the kids that go through the camp experience become the counselors and the leaders yeah. and eventually the directors. Yeah. And, and so you do work your way up mm-hmm. through the whole system. That, that is part of the, the, mm-hmm. the nature of it. Um, yeah. I think uh, going back to the Groton School, something I was confused about earlier was, you know, looking at uh, outdoor ed or camp is a place for, yeah, the wealthy, um, for anyone to develop these, like, character 
to develop their character to be communal and to be responsible and to learn how to fare um, when the lightning strikes. But then for poor people, it was to um, give them the skills so that they could rise in the social class, you know, right. whether it's um, like learning how to cash a check or learning a, a fine like craft or artisan skill. But I don't think we necessarily have to separate those two because it all comes back to your definition of wilderness and how like whether it's... Um, cooking dishes for, or cooking dishes, doing dishes for everyone in your cabin, or it's learning the skills of like a fine skill at a, at a farm in order to be able to get a job. Those are still lot bewildering experiences yeah. for both groups that help bring them together into one space. Well, and you bring back the term, the bewildering, right? right? And, and this idea of wilderness as a state of bewilderment that you're in an environment that is outside of your regular day-to-day environment to and, and novel and different, and you're now processing it. Mm-hmm. Now, the romantics kind of lay out this sublime wilderness ideal as in a non-developed uh, natural, again, I'm doing air quotes on a mm-hmm. podcast, but a natural environment that's not urban, that's not paved that doesn't have big buildings um and by the romantic ideal is therefore closer to god that that the white mountains were made by god boston was built by people and and that therefore the white mountains environment is a more valuable place to learn and grow because it's inherently more valuable it's inherently more divine Mm -hmm. if you're coming from that perspective right and which they were um, and so, whereas the corruption of man is literally woven into our streets because we built them, mm-hmm. right? So we can't get past that. And, and, and there is that fissure between the wilderness and urban environments. And now, again, I think that the, the state of bewilderment, I've run urban adventure programs with people from rural communities, and you can walk down Com Ave if you've never been in a city before or this city before, and you're pretty bewildered, like I'm you're pretty Times Square last week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you go down to Times Square, and you can't not be bewildered. Mm-hmm. It, it Times Square is not a, 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 a divine ecosystem, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a man-made construction, and, and but the state of bewilderment is what matters. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, when we look at that kind of idea of why we're connecting, it doesn't matter the specific environment. And that's part of the, why summer camp has spread and outdoor education is not just unique to the White Mountains, right? Just because Emerson and Thoreau and, and, and those folks wrote about the White Mountains and the Adirondacks and the Berkshires as these places that, that were these you know, of literary significance, of poetic beauty, of all that, that this is, this is, this is where it's at, right? Thomas Cole writes about Franconia Notch as if it is the most perfect expression of, of God's divine work on the planet, right? And, and now Highway 93 goes through the middle of it. But like, at, at, you know, he writes about it at that level of, of, of connectedness to, to, to the, to the almighty. But, it's that state of bewilderment that means that you don't have to physically be there. You can be in the mountains of North Carolina. You can be in the boundary waters of Minnesota. You can be in the mountains of Colorado or, or 
in the Yellowstone or in the Sierra Nevada. It doesn't matter where you are because it's being in that state of bewilderment connecting to the natural world that fits that romantic ideal. And, and the thing about it is you don't do it alone. You do it with people because it's the with people. It's those lessons that you're bringing home. It's that if we're going to hike together and I'm developing a blister, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to be vulnerable to you. And, and because I'm vulnerable to you, we can treat the blister and we can keep hiking. If I play the tough guy, my blister gets all infected and awful. And then we're not going anywhere because I'm being the tough guy, right? If, if you're hungry, you speak up and we stop and eat. If you're thirsty, you speak up and we stop and eat. We take care of each other as we go through the backcountry. And, and, and that commitment to each other is that rugged communalism. Mm -hmm. um, and it's why you look at, you know, the, it's, it's those experiences that really, and you see it in the literature. I mean, you look at, you look at Hawthorne. And anytime Nathaniel Hawthorne is writing about, you know, experiences in the wilderness, you know, of, of the White Mountains or of, of the Berkshires or whatever, the, the whole importance of it is connecting to others. You know, when you have the, the Great Carbuncle, which is one of his short stories about the White Mountains, the, uh, there's all these folks going after this, this giant jewel that's shining in the White Mountains. And all these people are out trying to get it for themselves. And they all meet terrible ends, except for this young couple that are on this adventure because they're excited and they're in love. And they realize they could get it. But really, the greatest joy is their love for each other. And so they leave it. They don't take it. And they survive and live a long, happy life. You have Ethan Brand, right? Ethan Brand, at foot of Mount Greylock and grows up in the Berkshires and, and in that mountain experience. And he leaves that mountain experience and he goes off and he gets educated. And, and he commits the, the, the unforgivable sin, which is that, you know, he is putting his own knowledge and learning over the betterment of his fellow human beings. And once he's committed that unforgivable sin and he's willing to, to you know, put himself above everyone else, his only way out of it is to literally throw himself into a lime kiln and, and burn up into ash, right? It's this horrible, tragic thing. But it's this idea that if you go at the wilderness alone, that you're going for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. If you go for each other, then you have this longer uh, longer term success and learning and, and the real growth that comes from it. And and that's Hawthorne. Mm -hmm. and it, when you look at, how, at his short stories and, and how he treats the wilderness. And, and you go on and on and on. Um, but... You know, Hester Prynne goes into the into the woods, and, right. and it's from there that she develops this kind of role within the community that people come to her mm -hmm. because she's there. She's connected to that. Even though she was ousted. Even though she was ousted, yeah. but it's in being that in mm -hmm. it, she actually serves the community more effectively, right. coming from the wilderness mm -hmm. in that sense, and and it, from that state of bewilderment, right? Because it's not really the wilderness; it's it's yeah. Boston, you know, but. Yeah, I think a lot of the stories aren't going to come from going and climbing a mountain alone necessarily right. or going skiing alone. I, I don't think I would have stories about that, but we have stories about like skiing down rocks in right. Vermont and skiing in the rain and then getting 
uh, food poisoning that same day and still yeah. skiing anywhere. <laughs> like that's the stories come from us sharing that experience. Yeah. Saying, oh, hey, my roommate and I did that rather than just I did this. And, yeah. you know, I didn't share it with anyone. Right. Yeah. And, and what does that do for you when you share that experience? Right? It brings you together. It mm-hmm. creates these bonds between people that are really tight. Like one of the things that I really love, I, I'm, I'm a Cub Scout leader in, in, you know, in Jaffrey and where I live. And one of the things I love about it is that you look at all the people that are involved in scouting and the Girl Scouts are the same way. My, my wife's the Girl Scout. She's the <laughs> junior troop leader. And, and so, but what we see are people from all different perspectives and all different backgrounds and political orientations and religious orientations. And we all come together to play games with our kids and to go camping with them and to, to sell Girl Scout cookies and to go door to door to collect food for the, you know, for the hungry in our community. Like we do that together and we transcend all these barriers that we see on cable news. Everything that there's, is telling us why we're, we shouldn't get along and don't get along and what's wrong with America today. No, common shared experiences in the outdoors still do what they've always done, which is provide these opportunities for people to break down those barriers and build the communities that we live in. And, and, and so now that's not the only way to do it. I think Habitat for Humanity does a great job of the same thing. And that's not a wilderness experience. But, you know, you look at all sorts of different ways that we serve together. But it's the key thing that's fundamental to all these outdoor education programs, regardless of whether they're serving, you know, wealth and privilege or inner city or bringing them together, regardless of whether it's, it's a summer camp that's the same location that's been there forever or it's a scout unit or, you know, troop pack, whatever, or it's, a, it's, it's outward bound, any of these things, the idea of service and compassion are central to their mission. And, and, and those things are what builds that community. And that's why it's so important to, to democracy and, and to, to civil life. Mm-hmm. What about some of the camps that have become increasingly specialized? So, like, going to music camp or to, like, specifically softball camp, um, are though and the camps that are like structured in terms of like we're gonna go do this and we're gonna I mean they're all structured but it's you know solely around practicing the violin. Yeah. Are those serving the same purpose? Just um, making the outcome more productive. I, the the word camp is overused. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we, we you know we can have you know violin camp. We can have soccer camp. We can have you know. And I'm not saying that. You know, if you're like even if the, they're sleep away. Yeah, even yeah. if they're sleep away. You know, uh, but I think common shared experiences do common shared experience things. Um, you know, but we, you look at what the word camp is used for. You know, there's you know we have a, a, a camp in our community where you know the kids are just playing games in the field all morning, and they go walk to the beach and they go swimming all afternoon. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the reality is that what it is is a really affordable. Uh, daycare mm-hmm. for working families, you know, and, and that is there in the summer when school's not running. It, it's it, it and a lot of other programs like that are a great way to maintain food security for communities that don't have, you know, that once there's school lunch is not being served, that means the kids don't necessarily have a reliable meal every day. And so creating a camp, again, air quotes, um, is, a, is a great way to, to do that service. Um, and there's lots of those all around the country um, that are really valuable. Um, are they the same thing? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But I don't, I don't want to judge either. 
you know, I, 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 they're serving a great need. They're building community. You're building friendships and relationships. Kids are having fun. They're having shared experiences right. where they're playing soccer or, you know, playing in a, in a, in a four-piece musical yeah. group, Perhaps the quartet. Perhaps the that the orchestra will be better for it by living together for a week and yeah. having mm-hmm. to eat together and go rehearse together. Yeah. I think That'll the goals be better. Are different. Yeah. 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 But it's still like the shared experience will make their music better. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I mean, so that, I mean, that hits a lot of the, those kind of key elements of this where, where class comes in. And, and again, where I think it's important for us to be critical, but it's also important for us to recognize the perspective of where it's coming from at the time, mm-hmm. um, a, a, as well as thinking about what's the current role that it plays. And, and we can be really cynical about programs that exist today, but then thinking about the practical need that they're serving mm-hmm. and the social realities of how are you able to do that and, and to serve those needs and to get kids what they need. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and how, how do these operate as expressions of community? Um, and how organizations build community. I mean, a lot of churches use uh, use camps as a way to build the faith and, and build the community within that church. Um, now, they may not be welcoming in people from other churches or other faith groups, but they're serving that purpose of building that community. And, and the diversity of camps is that, like we were saying earlier, that we can just go start a camp and have that, well, you can go start a camp. People down the street can go start a camp. And... And, you know, in New Hampshire, they, the New Hampshire Historical Society did a study. They wanted to find out how many camps have been in New Hampshire. And at, well, at 460, they stopped counting. And they didn't say there's been 460 camps. They said at, four, at, at this point, we're, the evidence is so scanty. And there's so many of these camps that, you know, th- it may have started under this name, at this location, and the next year it had a different name, mm-hmm. but it was the same people, and the next year it was a different name, but yeah. different people. And so is it the same camp? Is it three camps? You know, or what about two or three camps running with the exact same name at the same time in the same state? Those things occur. You know, and, and so you see these, um, it's really hard to trace it. And so what I think is really unique is you see these expressions of belief about what our kids need or what our culture is not providing, our dominant culture is not providing. Mm-hmm. And you see it expressed in all these different camps. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a really valuable way to approach looking at these kind of social organizations as opposed to seeing them as if they're an expression of the whole. Right. It's more of like a socially accepted rebellion. It is. We're not getting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And whether it's the, the, the wealthy rebelling or the inner city rebelling, or social workers rebelling, or religion rebelling, mm-hmm. like you're, you're seeing these smaller groups, or just people who have an educational ideal they want to promote. And, and they're able to get that out through these small organizations that have transformational impact on kids. You know, really does define people's lives because it comes at the right time and, you know, but that's a story for another day. Yeah, we'll get to it. Thanks so much for today. Yeah, you're welcome. And on that note, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We're looking forward to working with Hutch more throughout the semester and for going up and talking to Keith King, a 90-plus-year-old outdoor education kind of pioneer and, and king up in New Hampshire. And we can't wait to hear his stories and to um, share our stories with him. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you got it from 
somewhere like the viewcommonthread.com website or from iTunes. But wherever you got it, uh, we'd love if you'd subscribe to our podcast, and I'm sure you would too. So stay tuned for more um, more episodes on experiential education and other things that we are looking into, some of our DC episodes and healthcare episodes that will be coming out this semester. Um, and thank you so much for listening. As Kobe would say, we'll keep looking for the common thread.